Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 229. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week continuing our baseball month with a review and discussion of Angels in the Outfield. If you would have told me the day we sat down to record episode one of Monorail Radio that it would take another 228 conversations before we got to Angels in the Outfield, I would have told you that I must have been comatose and you had done (laughs) the show with somebody else because this is one of my all-time favorite movies. It's not one of my favorites, but it's definitely up there. And this was huge in my house as a kid. Uh, Funnily enough... This was another big one for my brother. He re- None of this makes I know. sense to me. I was thinking that when I was thinking about, you know, how much we watched it as a kid. And I was like, you know, for somebody who didn't, who still doesn't really like sports. I mean, he's been to a couple of Yankees games because it's just what we did as a family. But he never got into baseball, never played other than t-ball. Um, he's just so into the baseball movies. Or he, he was as a child. Yeah, I mean, I had this recorded off of the wonderful world of Disney when it was on ABC Sunday nights, right? I had it taped off of there. I wore out the tape. I went and bought the DVD, watched the DVD like crazy, and I probably haven't opened the case for the DVD in almost 10 years. So there was a point for no reason other than not having time that I stopped watching the movie same I have to I'm gonna have to ask my brother or my mom I don't think that we ever owned the VHS but we definitely watched it enough where even you know in that gap of my teenage years where I wasn't going back and revisiting this one a lot as soon as we put it on the other night I knew it like line for line yeah so 10 years later does the film hold up does the film hold up since it was made in the early 90s, closer to mid-90s. That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code MONOREAL at checkout. Visit FierceFoxCo.com to check out all of the collections. Young Roger lives in a short-term foster home with his foster parent, Maggie, and his roommate, JP. Roger's father visits and tells him sarcastically that they will be a family again when the fledgling angels win the pennant. His father really has no interest in raising Roger, and his mother has since passed away. Disney movie, right? That night, Roger prays and asks that God help the angels win so that they can once again be a family. The next day, Roger and JP attend an angels game where an angel arrives and helps the team win. 
Al, the head angel, arrives and tells Roger that only he can see the angels. The boys win a raffle to meet George Knox, the angel's frustrated manager, and Roger tells him that the angels have helped them win, but he is hesitant to believe him until his players tell him that they feel something is helping them as well. George goes to Maggie's and speaks with Roger about the Angels and invites him and JP to the game the following day, where Al tells Roger he can no longer tell anyone about the Angels that are helping in the game. At the game, Roger develops a sign to inform Knox when he sees an Angel, so when he does, Knox uses his worst hitter to pinch hit for his best hitter, leading to a win in the game and an invitation from George to the boys to join them at every home game for the rest of the year. Through his signs, George helps the Angels turn their season around with the help of Roger, of course, as well as reinvigorate the career of off-injured pitcher Mel Clark, whom Knox has a poor relationship with. With two games left, the Angels hold a one-game lead over the White Sox. However, Roger has a court date that prevents him from attending the game. Not only do the Angels lose, but Roger's father signs Roger over to the state permanently, ending the hopes of them ever being a family again. Ranch Wilder, the broadcaster for the Angels who has a feud going with George Knox, also tricks JP into telling him about the Angels, which Ranch uses to sabotage George in the press, leading to his owner, Mr. Murphy, deciding to terminate George unless he takes back everything that he said. So at a press conference... All of his players swear their loyalty to Knox, leading to Murphy retaining Knox as manager. At the final game of the season to determine the pennant winner, Al tells Roger that championships are to be won on their own and that the Angels won't be helping today. He also tells us that Mel only has six months left to live due to his heavy smoking habit and that he will be an Angel as well. Knox allows Mel to start and finish the game as the Angels win the game and the pennant. After the game, George tells the boys that he has adopted them and they will, of course, be a family. So let's jump right to the start of the movie. What I like here is that there's a lot of quick dialogue to set up exactly where we are. They do it through... Radio broadcasts, they do it through a little banter back and forth between Roger and JP as they're riding their bikes back from the stadium because they do like to ride their bikes down there. Like They just do a really good job of fleshing out exactly where we are because sometimes people forget that this movie is picking up mid-baseball season. Right. It is a very strong open because... They start off with such a big question. JP asks Roger if he believes in heaven. Um, so you get the character development immediately because Roger says, that's where my mom is. And JP says, that's where his father is. So you know that both of them have lost a parent. You don't know that they're in foster care yet. But I agree with you. They get to the heart of it very quickly, um, even though it's a little bit jarring you know, factoring in modern day media to see a film open with a question like that now. Yeah, there's, I think, a lot of things in this movie that just by virtue of it being nearly 30 years old and the way of the world sort of changing media-wise, social media-wise, I hate to say social norms, 
Um, I think that there are certain elements of the film that are not going to necessarily hold up for a modern audience, and I think some of that we're going to flesh out as we sort of go on and discuss this. But something that I think holds up as strong today as it did when the movie came out is the the scene with his dad. Yes. Because this happens almost right away. Your opening credits end, and you get the scene with the father. And he is the stereotype of, like, the deadbeat 90s dad. He's got the Harley, the leather jacket. He puts out cigarette butts on his own clothing. You know, He's like, smoking inside. Smoking inside. Again, something that you wouldn't see in a Disney film today, and I think something that... Uh, a lot of kids would be sort of surprised to see, especially because he's doing it in the middle of this foster home. But the the scene is just so good. You can cut the tension with a knife. And I'm going to say this now, and I, you know I hate to repeat myself on this show, but I'm going to do it anyway. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Th- this, he, he is an outstanding actor, even as a child, carried the weight of this film on his shoulders. And I think... He is what really sends this scene home. I would agree. I mean, this is a huge scene. I remember this being a huge trailer moment because this is setting up the entire film is that, yep. you know, he's the Roger is still young enough where he has the hope that if the angels can win, they will put their family back together. And he doesn't understand yet how complex that is for his father. Um, his father doesn't need any help being a jerk. As you said, they they cut right to the chase. He is a deadbeat dad. Yeah. Um, but what I really wish they had hit on a little bit is how young he is. The father is played by Dermot Mulroney, who I think this was one of his earlier films. Because uh, I remember his big one being My Best Friend's Wedding. And when I saw his name in the opening credits, I didn't recognize it as a child. But when I saw it now, I was like, who does he play in this film? And then when I realized, I was like, oh, my God, he's the dad. But he looks to be about what? Maybe mid to late 20s at best. And when you factor in that Roger is about 10 years old, you know, I wish they had leaned into the backstory a little bit more that not only is the mother passed away, that they clearly had him when they were pretty young themselves. And I feel like, I I mean, we don't necessarily need to sympathize with dad here, but I think a deeper understanding would have benefit the story a little bit. But we know right away that Roger is in love with his angels. We know that they are a terrible team. I love the scene that follows this because you get a really heavy moment with the dad, and then it's followed up by a really lighthearted scene where Roger and JP have climbed a tree overlooking the outfield wall, and he's got his binoculars, and they have their transistor radio. I just love everything about this, and I wished, I remember as a kid wishing that, like, I could have done this. Of course, you'd never see this today. You know, they'd be charging a tree, they would build a treehouse and be charging people VIP to sit there, but it doesn't change the fact that it's a really fun aesthetic. I feel like the closest thing you have is the apartments over by Wrigley Field. And they charge for those, They will. Oh, absolutely. Even if you're living in the apartment. Right. Um, But they do call it out immediately where where security kicks them out and says, don't ever let me see you coming back. And security is so far away from them, too. I mean, Roger's in this tree with binoculars, for crying out loud. It's not like they have 
a premium view from where they're sitting. But yeah, it, it's just more really good story and character development because you're establishing that obviously these these kids don't have much, but they still find a way to see their beloved angels uh, and you know, that Roger's going to do whatever it takes to make that happen to go watch a game. I also love what happens in this scene with George Knox because you've seen the frustrated manager before. It's kind of a trope of every baseball film, but they do it so differently here because you have Knox come out of the dugout and literally get into a fist fight with his own pitcher. And the best part about it to me is how the Blue Jays... Now that you have a... It's, yeah. it's a bench clear <laughs> for the Angels, but then the Blue Jays jump out and the, and their manager goes, this isn't our fight. Get back in the dugout. Like, it's really good comic relief because they're playing up on this idea that you've seen bench clearing brawls in baseball before, but you've never seen... You've never seen it one-sided where one team is fighting each other. Exactly. And speaking of the fighting, Danny Glover is like really in it. I don't think they had any doubles. No. Danny Glover, I think I looked up his age because I because I that stood out to me too that they actually had him in the fight. I think he was 48 when they made this movie. Wow. I mean, they're not really like throwing too many punches but i mean he is rolling around on the pitcher's mound yeah you know and they they don't cut away there's no wides he's he's really in it i also like that after that you get this scene with there's there's a little bit that happens here some more characters that we get introduced to like ranch wilder and it like sort of defies logic that a broadcaster for the team, hired by the team, would be so anti-team. But it's not that he is anti-Angels, he's anti-George Knox. And I love the tension that the two of them have in that post-game interview on the field. He is such a great low-stakes antagonist. Because and they do a really good job of building because he does cause a big problem for George in the end. Um, but I like that, you know, he's just starting by taking little jabs here and there. I also like how that's juxtaposed against the locker room bonding, because even though the Angels have lost, they just kind of know what they are at this point And they're sort of taking it in stride and they're, you know, having a laugh over it. But you can still see that they're sort of supporting each other uh, because a couple of the players check in with Mel. They ask him how his arm is doing. Um, so I, I like that they're sort of setting up here that they're not exactly content with losing, but they just are what they are. And they're not really going to push themselves to be any more than that. I also love the character that is Hank Murphy, the owner of the Angels. And I'll tell you why. Because I can tell you without having to actually fact check this, that he is a tribute to Gene Autry. Gene Autry, right, the singing cowboy, mm -hmm. he was the original owner of the California Angels. He's what brought Angels baseball to California. So I love that it is a very, it, it's a subtle cap tip if you don't know the story of the team. Okay. That actually clarifies a note that I'm going to save for later. I'm going to hold because it it doesn't make sense to talk about it right now, but that that does sort of change my mind. 
so now you get into the scene that really does set up the entire plot of the movie. Yes. Which is Maggie tucks the boys into bed and they're all in sleeping bags because as Miguel, who is the third kid living in the house and, you know, he's not in he's not in the film for that long because he gets moved. I think in the next scene, he goes into a longer term foster program. They're talking about Maggie and how she's he says she's too old to tuck in sheets and clean up after us. And that's why we need to use the sleeping bags. And she asks the boys if they said their prayers. And of course, you know, they say, yes, they did everything. And they did yeah, next I washed to my face. I brushed my teeth. Right. But you get this really powerful scene, I think, with Roger praying to God, asking for help for the angels so that his family can be brought back together. Obviously, his mother has passed away. She won't come back. But he wants to be with his father again and he's so young that he doesn't understand that when his father says we're not going to be a family again until the angels win the pennant he doesn't understand that he's saying that sarcastically so he's taking it very literally and he has a really really good scene here he really does i mean there is so much working for this scene uh like i said before i think roger's age was absolutely perfect because he's old enough to do things like go sneak into a tree and watch a baseball game. And he's, he's old enough to understand and he's pretty independent, but at the same time, there is still that childlike innocence where he believes that this can happen. And they've created such an amazing balance with this character because in the scene with his dad, his dad, the, one of the last things he says is you understand what I'm saying, don't you? After he says, we'll be a family when the angels win the pennant. And then um, he tells him he's going up north. Yeah. And then he asks, you understand what I'm saying, don't you? And it's such great writing to show how inept he is at parenting because he expects that his kid is just going to let him off the hook. And Roger sort of does because he's like, yeah, I get it. So Roger's mature enough to know that he's just got to kind of yes his dad in this situation. But now we see the other end of it where he still has that innocence and that hope of being reunited with his father and being able to go live with him again. Um, I also think it was a really interesting choice, a really solid choice that they do have him pray to God instead of praying to his mother. I don't think that you would see that now. You'd never see it again. Uh, And now I think if they were to, God forbid, remake this film, um, he probably would be praying for the mother to look out for him or the mother to send to, to come down or, or send angels. Um, but I feel like it's just so powerful. It was in the nineties and it's still powerful now because you don't see things like this anymore. No. And, and, and frankly, I don't think Disney's ever going to make a movie like this again. Uh, I don't think that a movie that is, going to be rooted in faith because that's really what this is. It is the entire premise of the movie. You're absolutely right. I don't think Disney would ever make this movie again. I don't think that, you know, unfortunately, um, without getting into an entire debate, I think that society in general has a very finicky way of when we do and when we don't support certain ideologies. And I think that you would just not see a faith-based film come out of the Walt Disney Company ever again, which is a shame because I think that, you know, there are a lot of great stories out there to be told. 
And I have said at nauseum, I'm getting sick and tired of live-action remakes because Disney's out of ideas. Movies like this work. And I think that movies like this, when people talk about diversity, it's cast, absolutely. Characters, absolutely. Different, you know, genders, different ethnicities, absolutely. But I also think that this kind of storytelling falls in the same category. You know, imagine you have your faith-based Christian Disney film, you have a Hindu Disney film, you have a Hebrew Disney film. Like, there are just ways that you can create new and interesting characters, and I think that they kind of had a broad appeal to everyone, because I don't think that this is the kind of movie that you watch, and it's it's not so over-the-top that anybody can't watch it. I think it's very approachable for anybody to watch, but the entire thing exists because Roger prays to God. Disney's never going to make a movie like this again, and I honestly think that it's a shame. I think it's also different watching it now as an adult versus when you watched it when you were a kid because, you know, I'm saying now it feels jarring. It doesn't personally to me, but jarring in the sense of, oh, my goodness, you would never, ever see this now. But when you're a kid... um, and I mean, I may be slightly biased because I was raised Catholic. Um, I thought it was extremely relatable as a child because yeah. it's what you were taught to do. You say you you say your prayers before you go to bed. So as a kid, I thought nothing of this. I, you know, like, yes, it's a prayer, but in the Disney sense of it, it's almost tantamount to wishing upon a star and then your story builds from there. But what I caught watching it now as an adult is how much the faith gets questioned and I never really picked up on that as a kid and I really like that they explore that a lot more throughout the rest of this film yeah and I I I thought it was funny I I never caught it as a kid but I caught it this latest viewing when he finishes his prayer and he goes amen and he rolls over and he rolls back over he goes and a woman too like it was just it was really funny it was lighthearted and you know, I I thought that it worked, um, and I'm surprised that I I never caught that before. I did because in the beginning of the prayer too, um, I mean he's he's talking to God, but there is a beat where he says he or she. Yeah. Uh, so that was very progressive too for the '90s. For sure. Then you get really really good backstory fleshed out again with George. Um, and his rocky relationships with people, like with Ranch Wilder. We find out that Ranch Wilder ruined his career. They were both ball players. Ranch ended up going on to be a manager, but Ranch slid into George. George was a catcher. He slid in with his spikes up, ending his career. So I love the fact that they fleshed that out very quickly and that you get a reason for this animosity because, as I stated before, it wouldn't make sense that Ranch would have such animosity towards Knox. Right. I mean, it is such a Gordon Bombay moment, but I like how it is completely different from the Mighty Ducks because, yes, Knox does have a raging temper, and some of that is rooted into 
his career ending because of Ranch Wilder. But at the same time, he doesn't dwell on it quite the same way that Bombay does as this, you know, life altering moment that completely changed the trajectory of the rest of his. I mean, yes, it is. It's your career. It could have been completely different. But um, I just like that there is that parallel to Bombay, but that is the only parallel. The way that they react and the way that they conduct themselves moving forward is completely different from their career ending. I also like the Rocky relationship that he has with Mel and that little bickering that they have. And you want to talk about Disney going for it. I forgot that Mel pitched injured because as Mel pointed out, you were forcing pain pills down my throat. Again, not something you're going to see in a kid's film nowadays, but that is something that has been discussed in professional sports, whether it's been HGH or steroids, or we live in this now CTE era where people are realizing, especially in football players, playing through injury, the the consequences that you pay later on. And I'm just really surprised that they went there. And again, progressive given the time period and, and heavy for a Disney film. And it's great for Knox's character, too, because he throws it right back at Mel Clark and says, I didn't force you to take them. I told you to take them and and just accepts no responsibility in the situation. So this scene is now the scene where we get the first view of the angels. Roger and JP are at a kid's day. They're sitting in the bleachers in the outfield and you get the first angel. It looks incredible. I was just going to say that even by today's standards, the CGI looks great. Yeah, because you have a real person. It's not motion capture. It's just a person in flowing robes. And I think you can kind of get away with some of blurring out some of the imperfections because they are an angel. They're sort of an apparition. I don't want to make them sound like a ghost, but I don't know what else to call it. Um, But they have that glow around them. It looks spectacular. Now, it would be a completely CGI'd character. I don't even think you'd have a live action actor or actress that they would just shoot and then digitally insert into the scene. To me, the best comp that we had at the time, and please don't misunderstand, I'm not comparing angels and ghosts like you said, but um, Casper, to me, was like the best CGI. I thought that looked great, but it's easier to do because they were supposed to look cartoony. Here, you're using real people. Uh, But I love the aesthetic, too, how they're not just glowing, but I I love that gold halo effect that they do as well. I think it's part of the costume that they're wearing, but the way that it just pops off, I, I think it still looks great. It looks better than a lot of the CGI now. You also get introduced to Al, the head angel. I love this character. I'm biased because I love Christopher Lloyd, but even if I didn't care for Christopher Lloyd, it's impossible not to love this character. I love that he takes the American League hat off the umpire and says, just call me Al, and he wears the hat. The whole thing is just brilliant. You know what surprised me, though, watching it now is how little screen time he actually has. He does, He is such a memorable part of this film. I thought he was in it so much more. And I don't think he's got even 10 minutes of total screen time. I think he's probably got less than six. 
Yeah. Like, as I sit here and think about it, maybe more than five, but less than six. But... And he plays such a major role. You're right. Yeah, it's a pivotal role. And I mean, obviously, he's a scene stealer. Um, but yeah, my in my childhood memory, I thought he was in, like, every single scene. Yeah. And I love the scene that we get the photo opportunity, that horrific photo that Knox takes with Roger when Roger tells him about the angels. And he looks at David, who's his assistant, that he has scheduled to be fired in four days. I love how David becomes a babysitter as this progresses. And that should get old, and it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It's comedy gold. But I love... Just the lines, he's like, you'd think that they would background check these people before they bring them out on the field. And, like, their interaction is great. And and what that leads to is Knox questioning how the Angels won the game because he said, we're incapable of winning. This team can't win. At one point, he asks Murphy to trade the entire team away. And so when he starts talking to the players in the clubhouse and they start saying, you know, no, I feel like there was something else there. There was a force. There was a this. There was a this. I love that Knox takes it one step further and goes and actually hands Roger the printed photograph, which would not happen now. Now they would just send you like a JPEG and it would be an email or they'd save it immediately onto a thumb drive and say, here you go, go about your business. If you even get it. But to actually deliver the 8 by 10s to Maggie's house, I love that he takes it a step further because now he's starting to question, is the kid making it up and were we lucky or is there really something there? And he toes that line for quite some time. Yeah, the whole thing is really well done because when they take the picture, Roger tells Knox that he saw the angel and he's like, if you don't believe me, go ask the guys. And... Knox does just that. Uh, he asks Ed Williams, who made this amazing catch, and Mesmer, who hit the home run, how they felt. And they kind of back up the story with having like an out-of-body experience. And that's what makes Knox go uh, and want to talk to Roger again. And I really like that Roger doesn't even necessarily believe this himself yet because, yes, he did tell Knox that he saw angels. And, yes, this is what he prayed for so that the team can win. But he goes to Maggie to have a conversation about her faith. Um, and she gives this really beautiful answer about how miraculous things can happen. And as she's talking herself through it, she does say, well, I guess that means I do believe in angels and that's good enough for Roger. And he's like, OK, I'm I'm in this now. Um, so I like that he sort of questioned it. And I just wish we would have had that same point of view from Knox because he knows something's up enough where he goes to hand deliver this picture and he's starting to raise an eyebrow. He certainly doesn't believe anything is happening yet, but. I wish we had sort of seen his wheels start turning a little bit more as to why he wants to pursue this with Roger. Well, he's just so desperate to win, and that's why he invites them to the game the following day. And I really like that scene because even there, he invites them to the game. He has them seated right next to the dugout. And even then, he's like, kid, I kind of just looked at you as like a good luck charm, not somebody that's, I think he said, having spiritual hallucinations. Yes. 
and he comes up with the sign. He's like, I can't come over here every time you you think you see something. So they come up with the now infamous angel sign, the flapping wings. I love the scene. I think that Danny Glover and Joseph Gordon-Levitt together, I think that they are brilliant. I think that they sell it well. Um, and I think that it's a really good it's a really good introduction to what their relationship is going to mean, not just on a personal level, but also on a team level for the rest of the movie. Yeah, they're laying a really good foundation here. And I agree with most of what you said, but that's the thing. He keeps referring to Roger as lucky. I wish that they had just sort of established him as superstitious. I feel like that would have helped make a transition from Knox being desperate to win to full on believing and putting all his faith in this kid who he has no prior connection to. I think that what happens here with Hemmerling, when they put Hemmerling in, they take Mitchell out, worst hitter for the best hitter. I think this scene is where the critics started to hate this movie because this movie got panned, absolutely panned. I think it's the slapstick where Al is just making the ball jump all over the place, the Oakland A's can't handle the ball. It's ridiculous. But it's a slapstick 90s children's film. I think that at the end of the day, you have to allow them to take a few liberties with the funny because even though some of the subject matter is heavy, you're still trying to appeal to a seven-year-old who wants to watch a movie about baseball. You also have to do something different because we've seen the Angels lift a player to make a catch that they otherwise wouldn't have. We've seen the Angels crush a ball so that they could score a home run. So what were you going to do? Make the worst hitter? I mean, he does score a home run, but you still have to... You can't have him hit it out of the park too. No, because now it's just too much of the same. And you come off of that very lighthearted funny scene into another very heavy scene where we learn more about JP's backstory because Knox goes to drive the boys home. This is after now he's invited them to every game for the rest of the year. And JP will not get in the car. Knox has to drive them back to Maggie's on the team bus because JP gets a pit in his stomach because before he went to Maggie's, he and his mother lived in a car and he had to sleep curled up on the front seat. So anytime he gets into a car, his stomach ache comes back. Similar to Roger's story, even as a kid, this lands. And it's even worse as an adult. I also love how Roger is looking out for him. Yeah. And JP is at a total loss for words and Roger's the one to, to tell Knox, like, no, 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 this isn't going to happen. He's not getting in this car. Yeah, and I love that Knox takes them on the team bus. Uh, a team bus. Like now, you're starting to kind of tear down the wall that is Knox, and you're starting to see that he's doing more than just appeasing them for his own selfish gain. But you can see that he actually wants to do the right thing by these kids. I also love that with each passing game, the boys get more and more angel swag because now when they're tucked in at night, they have full on angels comforters. They've got the PJs. Uh, later on, Maggie has a phone. Yeah, that that's a bit that doesn't get old either. And you get this really great story that's fleshed out. It's really a roller coaster ride that you you start to take with Mel Clark, played by Tony Danza, right? 
where JP has that very innocent insult. He doesn't mean it, but it's a very innocent insult when before Mel's comeback game, he says, you used to be Mel Clark. And I remember even as a kid, like, left you with a little bit of a pit in your stomach. Awkward. Totally awkward. And then Mel has this great comeback game. And, like, you just root for Mel Clark so much, not only because you love the character, but I think because in the 90s, we all still love Tony Danza, right? So it was he was a very easy character to root for. Absolutely. And I also like that this is really the turning point for Knox was with Mel's game where he's still not full on believing, but he is completely invested in everything that Roger is saying. I love what happens next as well, because Knox, after they win again, because Roger tells him he's got to start Mel. When he's like, you know, what is it that you want? Anything you want, I'll do it for you. This Little League Sandlot scene with these other kids. I loved it as a kid. And I think you can tell that Danny Glover had a blast with this scene. Almost too much because that is the only thing I bump on with this scene is when did Knox become such a wonder with children? I understand that his stance is softening on Roger and JP, but, you know, he singles out the tiniest kid and teaches him how to hit, um, you know, and he's just so joyful in this. And it's a wonderful scene, but I don't buy that the character has broken down that much yet. Here's the thing. We know later on in the film when he has the conversation with Roger when Roger's father gives him up, and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit here. He has the conversation about, you know, my dad was never around for me and my brothers, and that was very hard, and I had to look out for them. Like, obviously, they're not going to have that conversation earlier in the movie, but it gives levity to why Knox is the way that he is with kids, but I will agree with you that it almost seems like it happens a little too quick. Right, because he is developing this relationship with Roger and JP. Obviously, he cares enough that he didn't force JP to get in the car. He got a bus instead. So I'll buy it for his relationship with the two of them. I'll even buy the notion of, you know, he was just down to do this game at Roger's suggestion, which I also love for Roger's character, that he didn't ask for you know, any more angel stuff. He didn't ask for something that was self-serving. He asked for a fun day with the neighborhood kids to play with a pro athlete. Um, But I just feel like, you know, we go from you didn't even want to stand next to this kid in a picture and now you're down to play with all of these kids. It's different when it's your lucky charm. I just don't buy that, that you're, you know completely reformed at this point yeah but we do get one of the best jokes of this movie when he's teaching this adorable little kid how to play ball the kid gets a base and then another mean mugging kid goes up to bat and he hits a home run so Knox tells Marvin to run home and that's exactly what he does still funny still slaps to this day yeah And that gets you into a really fun montage where the Angels are winning all of their games. Al is doing his thing. 
He is perfection in this montage. He's playing take me out to the ball game on the organ. Swinging from the foul post. Everything about it is really, really great. Especially the way that they're showing the team start to play with confidence. Because a lot of this is Al's antics, but there's not a lot of angels in the montage. Because these guys are actually starting to believe in themselves, which is a huge arc for this film. Right, because at one point, Knox looks over at Roger and he starts doing the angel sign and Roger sits there and shakes his head. So these guys are able to make all of this happen on their own. They don't need to rely on the angels quite as much as they did at the beginning of the film. And the best part about it, and I think that it's really something that's been consistent in the filmmaking, you get these great moments and then they immediately stub your toe when they slam the door in your face because the montage ends with Roger having to go to court where he finds out that his father has signed him over to the state permanently. Yeah, the pacing is incredible as far as the high highs and the low lows. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, in this scene in the courtroom specifically, he steals the show. He really does. And it's so harsh, too, because the dad doesn't even hug him goodbye. He just kind of gives him a pat on the cheek and and just walks out. Yeah. It's really, really rough. And then you get that great moment with Knox, right? Where I mentioned before that he has the conversation about, you know, my father and my brothers and, you know, this, that and the other thing. But Knox, the reason why Knox is at Maggie's is because he had to take JP home. Yes. Now, JP, in the meantime, has been duped by Ranch Wilder. And you just feel so bad for JP because you know what Ranch is doing. He's found a crying child in the clubhouse and he's going to poach this kid. Yeah. And JP's sitting there in hysterics because he was trying to see what Roger sees and he can't. He feels like he failed. Right. And all he knows is that. They want the Angels to win. He doesn't know the ulterior motive, so he puts it on himself that the Angels did not win the pennant that day. Right. But George gets them back to the house, and the the most wonderful moment with him is that he opts to stay and make dinner for them because he now relates with Roger, and he sees what Roger's going through, and he opts to stay and cook them dinner. That's the real, real, uh, real tear down the wall moment. Yes. That maybe came a little late because to the point you made earlier, it would have been nice to see that happen maybe before he held this sandlot game with the kids. Right. But conversely, had this come any earlier, you wouldn't have had that same build of seeing the angels climbing through the ranks in the montage and then having the gut punch of Roger's dad coming back in the picture. Right. Had you moved this earlier, you still need that high and low. Something that really hit me as a kid and continues through the latest viewing is the scene where they're sitting on the front porch and Danny Glover has this dialogue with Roger. But the most powerful moment for me, even as a kid, Mm. was when JP says, look, it's God's toenail, and Roger, who has no faith now whatsoever because his father 
has now told him we're never getting back together. So whatever happens to the angels doesn't make a difference. He goes, there's no God up there. And he's playing with the baseball, just tossing it in his glove. And as soon as he says, there's no God up there, he drops the ball. That, even as like a like eight or nine-year-old kid when this movie came out, that meant something to me, the symbolism of watching him uh, drop that ball. It's great. It's also God's thumbnail, not toenail. That's gross. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, but yes, it. I mean, this is a huge scene, um, not just because Knox stayed for dinner. We're going to later find out he blew off a meeting uh, with the owner to to be at this dinner. Right. Um, and he really wants to be there for Roger. Um, I like that this is the first time that the faith starts to get questioned. Um, but it's so odd coming from Roger because he sees he's the one who sees the angels. But Knox calls him on it immediately. He says he doesn't understand how Roger doesn't believe in God anymore when he's the kid who can see angels. So yeah. I really like that that gets thrown back in Roger's face immediately. Well, that's the thing. It has to be Roger that questions the faith because if it's right. anybody but him, it doesn't really carry any weight. Right. And we've sort of already seen that when he questioned what he was seeing in the beginning. So after all of this, we fall in love with George Knox as the audience, the team falls in love, the fan base falls in love, and then Murphy does the unthinkable and he fires Knox, except not entirely. Right. I want to circle back to what you were saying before about Murphy being based on a real person because that completely changed my mind about this character. Um, I actually thought that this was really bad casting at first because he's got a pretty heavy Southern accent. Yeah. Compounded with wearing the cowboy hat. You know, I kind of feel like being from the South He'd be he would never be skeptical of a higher power. Right. Yeah, sure. They're positioning him as sort of a God fearing man. So when he starts to question George's belief in the angels, it didn't add up for me. But knowing that he is based in life, that kind of does put a different spin on it. But to me, that's where as a filmmaker, you do take a little bit of liberty when it is in service of the story. Yeah. But I, they did it just to give added drama and to get this scene with the press conference. Like, I like the press conference scene and all that. I like the fact that all of the players come back and show their loyalty to Knox. I like that Maggie gets to speak at the press conference. But the fact is that Knox was hired away from Cincinnati to turn the Angels into a winning ball club. He's done that exact thing. Most owners would think to themselves, well, it might be a little crazy that you've got these two children that think they see angels and you're making game decisions based off of that. But somewhere in there, there's marketing, right? Like real angels helping the angels. And at the end of the day, guess what? It wouldn't really matter because you're looking at playoff revenue. You've sold tickets. You've sold merchandise. There are a lot of guys playing in Major League Baseball right now with spotty track records, and owners don't care to give these guys a $100 million contract because they're going to make a billion dollars off of them. So I, I, it, was, it was a nice scene. It's a well-done scene, 
But I'm not sure that it's entirely necessary or that it even makes sense. You're right, because Knox did exactly what he is being paid to do. He turned it around. Um, of all the things that we're being asked to suspend our disbelief for in the movie, I feel yeah. like this is the most because they are passing up on the marketing opportunity. That's the most unrealistic thing about it is that an organization wouldn't. Can you imagine the Yankees passing on something like that? Well, they almost passed on Aaron Judge, so maybe, maybe that's a bad example right now. But I can't, in the age of social media, imagine that any team would not be selling the wings and the halos and just milking this for all it's worth. Um, but I do want to delve into this press conference a little bit more because I feel like the biggest takeaway as a child is the team standing up and pledging their loyalty to Knox. And that's what yeah. you remember the most. It is one of the most pivotal and heartwarming scenes in this film. Um, but I took so much more away from it this time around. I love when Knox decides to start shooting from the hip. I think we all kind of expected him to go rogue anyway. Um, because that is the character. He's going to do what he wants. But I notice that he does have that change of heart, change of mind as soon as he sees Roger and JP walk into the room with Maggie. And I feel like this is so much more layered than you give it credit for because not only does he want to save face in front of Roger and JP, he's obviously started to care for them by this point. So he doesn't want to make Roger feel used for everything that's happened so far. So it's a little bit of that and probably because he's fully invested, he's probably realizing that he does want to adopt them at this point. So he doesn't want to mess up anything that he's built with them. But I think the other thing is that he doesn't want to shatter their faith any more than it's already been. You know, the night before, Roger's saying, I don't believe in God anymore. And I think it's also about that, that he doesn't want to crush this child's beliefs anymore. Um, and I love... Maggie's speech during this press conference. Um, I love that she not only calls it out in the film, but it's it's a really big social commentary calling out, you know, that a baseball player will make the sign of the cross or, um, you know, the football teams, they'll they'll kneel. And it is such a thing that we're so used to seeing. Um, but I love that she just calls it out like that. Yeah, funny that nearly 30 years later, that is still a relative conversation. Yes, absolutely. Because, you are you know, you can go back even the last 10 years, 12 years, where a guy would kneel in the end zone and pray after a touchdown, or you do get players that'll meet uh, at the 50-yard line and they'll kneel and they'll pray before a game. You got guys that cross home plate after hitting a home run, they make the sign of the cross, they kiss their finger, point up to God. But then everybody went crazy over Tim Tebow kneeling, and that was his touchdown celebration. You know what I'm saying? It's We find very interesting um, and ironic times when it is and is not okay to show faith. And I can't believe that 30 years ago, she calls it out, and how little has changed since then. But I guess it is what it is. It's not... I don't think it's ever going to change. That's the sad reality. Right. No, this isn't a case of the film being ahead of its time. It's that 
yeah, it is still a conversation that everyone is having when it comes to sports and religion. So we get to the final game of the season, right? And Al shows up and he tells Roger that the Angels won't be coming because championships need to be won on their own. I I love that this happens. Th- this whole game is sort of predictable because you know they're going to have their happy ending. But I'm glad that the team, you build up this moment so that they believe in themselves and they believe in Knox and Knox believes in them. And they all rally around each other. If you would have had an angel come, I think it would have cheapened the outcome. Absolutely. Especially because they are rallying around Mel Clark. Knox is giving him his shot um, to redeem his career. Um, And Knox has faith in Clark again. They've fully repaired their relationship. But Clark is obviously struggling. And the team is rallying behind them. They are playing a really strong defense so that Clark can stay in this game. Um, I kind of wish that Al had two separate visits, though. I kind of wish that prior to this game, he had told Roger they were not going to be at the last one and the team had to do it on their own. And that that was isolated from the other news that he drops, which to this day still utterly guts me yeah that mel only has six months left to live and that he doesn't even know there's anything wrong yet as a child that really messed me up because like i didn't know the difference at that point i thought like tony danza was going to die and nobody wants to see that because we were all watching him on who's the boss you grew up with him um but it obviously i know the difference now but it doesn't take away from how sad it is it is sad, and it's sad that someone would, you know, lose their life that early. It's sad that right as his career looks like it's going to end on a high note, it, it really isn't. Um, I, this, this movie does a really good job of playing with your emotions, and I like the fact that they do that early on in the film, or early on in the game, I should say letting us know that Mel's time is almost up because if they told us at the end, it would have just kind of crashed everything down. I think part of you rooting for the team to win is because you obviously want to see them succeed, but knowing that Mel's time is up, it gives you as the viewer a little something extra to put into him as a character because you want to, you want to see him go out on top because you no no one really wants to know when their time's going to be up but we know that his time's going to be up and it's a very helpless feeling as the viewer it is i mean they do a good job because you're not only rooting for the team at this point but it does raise the stakes and creates a tension of okay now they have to win it for mel um but to your point i love that they also introduce that idea of mortality they've done such a good job of exploring faith at this point and questioning faith and testing faith but now they bring up the question of mortality and it does sort of get your wheels spinning of what would you do in that situation would you want to know or wouldn't you because you know as sad as it is mel can just play this game like it's another game i mean like obviously the pressure is on him but he can just enjoy it for what it is. He doesn't have to know that it's his last. Um, but I think 
it just makes the experience that much more enjoyable for the viewer because it does pose another question and sort of makes you think, you know, about your own life and, and whether or not you would want to know. The best part about this scene is the angel wings. When Knox tells Mel that he's got an angel with him, even though there is no angel, he's just trying to get Mel to believe in himself. And Roger and JP start the angel wings, and then the whole team starts, and then the, the entire stadium does it. Is the it wave. Cheesy? Is it cheesy? Of course it is. But it's a sports movie, and it's supposed to be uplifting. I don't mind that at all. I love it. I'm surprised that, you know, eight years later when the actual Angels won the World Series, they did it off the back of a rally monkey, not the Angel Wings. Yeah. So I'm surprised that this did not stand the test of time. But I love, and the score. The score throughout the entire film has been fantastic. And when it comes up underneath this moment, it's just spectacular. Yeah. Is it cheesy? Absolutely. Does it give me chills every single time? Absolutely. Um, I kind of wish, though, that Knox didn't tell Clark about this decoy angel. I wish that it was Clark just believing in himself and showing how this entire team turned everything around for the franchise. You know, I wish that seeing Roger and JP coming out of the dugout and the rest of the team behind him would have been enough. And then the crowd would have certainly given him that added bolster. My bigger issue with this is that as per the usual, we're going to play with the rules of baseball (laughs) because you need to get through almost the entire run of the playoffs to win a pennant. The pennant winner is the American League or National League champion. Winning your division does not mean that you've won a pennant. So that's the one thing that even as a kid made no sense to me, and that's what I take the bigger issue with here. I'm fine with Mel having a decoy angel, but the like even as a kid I knew like you can't just win the division and win the pennant. Well, because it's a movie, you can't have two huge games. You know, like, obviously winning the division, it's a huge deal. There's going to be a big celebration. Where else in the film would you have put that, you know? You could have just had them win the division and you could have done a montage through the playoffs. Yeah, but two montages, I feel like that would have sort of watered down the second big win. it's a film it needs to build to that big moment and to have to do that twice I don't know I feel like it would have cheapened it well with all of that being said let's move on to the final closing scene of the film the adoption scene it is absolutely perfect I love the fact that Knox has decided to adopt both boys but Roger does not know at first that JP is being adopted. He thinks it's just going to be him. And because Roger is just such an endearing character, he tells Knox that he can't go without JP, not knowing that Knox has adopted JP as well. It's a perfect end to the film because the team wins the pennant and they get to be a family. Everything about it, and it's just, it's a full character arc for Knox. 
and it's a great moment for both kids. They knock it out of the park, pun intended. Um, yeah, I love it for Knox's character arc, but I love it even more for Rogers because, I mean, not only do you get to see him become adopted, obviously, and it tracks with with his character because he's so selfless. He's not going without JP. I don't know if you caught this too. Even in the Sandlot game that they play, JP gets a hit and Roger catches the ball, but yeah, he, he like drops it. juggles it a little bit so that JP can can get another base. Um, he's always looking out for him. So I love that moment that he is still looking out for his little brother. Um, and I love it even more because it restores his faith. The prayer was answered. He did get his family when they won. It's just not the family he thought that he was going to have. Yeah. Um, you want to talk about the cast here? Are we ready to move on and discuss the cast? Yeah. This is another one where so many megastars were in this film very earlier on in their career. Yeah. Let's touch on the stars first, and then we'll get to the megastars after. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he steals the show. He's absolutely incredible. What else do you want me to say? Yeah, I mean, he's got to carry a lot of weight in this film. I think equally shared with Danny Glover, but for a child that age to deal with this subject matter, he's just incredible. Danny Glover was the perfect balance to that. Danny Glover, a veteran actor, one of the great actors of our time. And it's fun to kind of watch him in this role because we're so used to seeing him in Lethal Weapon opposite Mel Gibson. So to see him in this role was great. I thought he was excellent. I thought that the he was very funny. Like, yeah. the comedy was there. And I think that he pulls some of that from Lethal Weapon because it is an action movie, but there is a lot of comedy involved. Yeah, he, he was just spectacular. He really was. Um you know, you know he's going to be able to handle the over-the-top yelling, but I love those soft-spoken moments when he's talking to the kids and those those moments that play for comedy, like when he's, um, he's yelling at the ump's bad call and uh, he realizes on his own, I can't do this, otherwise the angels are not going to show up. So uh, he's like, I've never seen such a an astute, call that was masterful well that was when when christopher lloyd when al takes over i don't think he took over i thought he took over i think he just sort of inserts himself there i think knox knew you know if i if i step out of line i don't get my angels and he realized it perhaps i thought i thought al was throwing his voice i don't think so but regardless it's one of my favorite comedic moments from Knox in this film. And let's talk about Al, played by Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd is just gold. He's so good in this movie. And you're we said it earlier, he doesn't have as much screen time as we thought that he did. But I don't think we needed more either. I think that they did just enough with that character where he's memorable and you didn't go over the top with it. He's perfection. It's perfect casting, perfect execution, and he doesn't need a lot of screen time because he just steals every single scene. Milton Davis plays JP. He is just so endearing. He is such a cute kid, and 
I remember even as a kid loving JP. Same. It could happen. I I love the eternal optimism. Uh, just so cute and and really, um, it, he's like a case of still waters run deep because yeah. JP doesn't have a lot of lines. Only when really he's talking to Roger. Um, part of the character is that he he clams up around adults. Um, but he really did ground that performance. Brenda Fricker plays Maggie. She's Known better as the pigeon lady in Home Alone 2. Yeah. What a gem. She was really good here. I don't want to say that she was typecast, but she was kind of typecast here. But it worked for the role. I don't think that she was typecast because in Home Alone, you know, she's not like dropping constant pearls of wisdom to Kevin. I mean, he learns from her, but not because she's, I don't want to use the word preaching because she doesn't really get preachy here either. Um, but I think it's it's different because here she is playing a maternal figure for Roger and JP. Uh so naturally, there's a lot that they can take away from her. But I, I just love the character. I love that she's a caretaker. I love that she's so generous. Um, and I love how a lot of the big faith questions are funneled through her character. Tony Danza plays Mel Clark. This is some of the best Tony Danza that I can remember. And I, I think he later went on to do a Disney movie that is not on Disney Plus. And I think it was called The Garbage Picking Field Goal Kicking Philadelphia Phenomenon. Do you remember I, this? I know the title, but I had no idea it was him. Yeah. Much better in this role. <laughs> yeah. Really, really good. He's great um, as far as the emotional baggage that this character has and wanting this redemption arc for his career. Uh, but I was also very impressed with the physical. I mean, he's, he's throwing some pretty good pitches. Yeah. Really good here. Um, let's see. We've got, uh, Taylor Negron plays David. He's just such good comic relief. He really is. I remember Taylor Negron vaguely from like, I think it was an Olsen twins show. Um, he was always kind of like that guy, right? Yeah. He, he was in like everything in the nineties, just not as a lead. Um, but this was no different. All of the bits that should have gotten old where he's constantly getting ketchup and mustard and nachos spilled all over him. It should have gotten real old real quick and it never did. And I love by the end, you know, he's in full angel's garb with the jacket, the halo, the wings. It's hysterical. We have a couple of actors here who really did blow up into something. Adrian Brody plays Danny Hemmerling. The pianist. The Oscar-winning pianist. Got his start here. Amazing. Matthew McConaughey plays Ben Williams. Now, McConaughey was a little bit of a name because this was at least after Dazed and Confused, but right. like only just after Dazed and Confused. So he still wasn't a superstar yet. 
but another one that kind of had a humble start with Disney. All right, all right, all right. But I think this is an important role for him because Dazed and Confused could have gotten him typecast for a lot of his career. So I think this was super important to show that he could take on... I mean, is his character the most serious? No, but it's a more serious film. So I think this, this changed a lot for him. For sure. Um... Final thoughts on 1994's Angels in the Outfield. I'll let you go first. For me, this film absolutely holds. Unfortunately, I don't think that you would ever see anything like it now. And I think that's why it's absolutely worth a rewatch. I enjoyed it as a kid. I I loved it as a kid, I should say. And, um, you know... Some of the moments looking at it now do come off as a little bit cheesy, but those moments can absolutely be overlooked because I feel like you get so much more out of it as an adult as far as uh, what they're posing about your beliefs and your faith. And I think that it's a fun family movie, but more importantly... If you are trying to teach your children about faith, it's definitely worth a watch. No matter what religion you are, um, I think it's worth a look just for some of the things that they explore. um, And it makes it easily understandable and digestible for kids. So I would highly, highly recommend this one. Yeah, I mean, the movie's near perfect. Other than playing with the baseball calendar a little bit, And at one point, they say that Mel came off of injured reserve in July, and he had his comeback game in August, but we know that he came off injured reserve the day he pitched the game. So there are some some traps that they set themselves as far as screenwriting went. They painted themselves into a couple of corners. But other than that, yeah, it's near perfect. This is not streaming on Disney+. Plus. This is not streaming anywhere. Um... It's not on MGM Plus because, believe it or not, this was actually a remake of an MGM film from back in the 50s. But it had nothing to do with the Angels because there were no... The the team didn't exist yet. It was just a kid that prayed that the Pittsburgh Pirates would win. And they called the movie Angels in the Outfield. And I thought, like, is that maybe why it's not on Disney Plus? Like, did somehow Paramount retain the... But but Disney bought the rights to the film when they bought the California Angels. According to Letterboxd, you can watch it on Amazon now. Well, but if when you we buy it or rent it, right? Because when we searched for it, it didn't come up. But I'm just saying, like, I don't understand why this is not on Disney Plus. If it's not on MGM, but it shouldn't be on MGM because they didn't produce it under MGM. Like, I, I just don't understand why it's not there. Maybe they're not comfortable with the subject matter. They're not comfortable with this subject matter? I know. Half of the movies on Disney Plus have warnings that don't really deserve them, by the way. And you're not going to put this up? I mean, it would be a terrible reason not to have it up there, but I'm wondering if they just don't want backlash from it. 
people need to get new hobbies. We want to know what you have to say about Angels in the Outfield. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monorail Radio, or you can email us, monorailradio at gmail.com. Before we get into the news, I do want to follow up on something from last week because I think it's so interesting what you were willing to suspend your disbelief for as far as baseball with this film versus Kid and King Arthur's Court. Um, I realized something when I posted the picture of the VHS that uh, Calvin is wearing rollerblades on the cover and we ripped it apart because he obviously didn't fall through the earthquake with said rollerblades on. Uh, so clearly they came out of his Mary Poppins esque backpack. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if you realize that and I wanted to call it out and get your reaction now because I just thought it was kind of funny that they bothered to factor that in for the, film cover yeah because kid baseball rollerblades marketing they just put marketing on a poster which obviously is the point of an ad but i'm surprised that he wasn't holding a big mac you know what i'm saying (laughs) (laughs) but anyway news of the week is coming up but first we're going to take a quick break if you're thinking of booking a trip to a disney destination you have to contact jackie zalezi from magical vacation planner My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip, just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. I am so thankful for her suggestion, as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly checked for discounts to make sure we were guaranteed the lowest price. Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. Our vacation was Perfect. All thanks to Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zalezi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official Monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. As always, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout to see all of Kelly's work and all of her services. It is online at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. We got a couple of trailer drops this week. The first for Peter Pan and Wendy. And I thought that... The first trailer was a disappointment because I didn't get enough of Jude Law as Captain Hook. We get a lot more Jude Law as Captain Hook here. No, there's just something here. I think he's not playing it with the same whimsy that you get in the original Peter Pan, not even with the whimsy that Dustin Hoffman did in Hook. Nobody's going to have his whimsy. But, yeah, but if you're going to remake the movie, 
I'm you know what? I'm done. This I'm done. I'm done with the live actions. I'm going to end up watching it. I hope that I'm wrong. I hope that this is this is just a product of oh a bad trailer. Oh, a bad trailer. Oh yeah, hey Pinocchio, bad trailer. Usually when you get more than one bad trailer, the movie's going to be a disappointment. Well, what was surprising was that the first one that we got, it was a full trailer. That wasn't even considered a teaser. But they still didn't do the full Captain Hook reveal. And I get it. That's marketing. You're, you're not going to. You're going to release a couple of these things. I think overall this was a better trailer, but it still doesn't give me the most faith in the film because um, I'm just not loving what I'm seeing so far. But the Muppets saved our trailer news. Slayed. Slayed the trailer. Um, we talked about Muppets Mayhem um, and how we were just so excited for a resurgence of the Muppets. You said you were cautiously optimistic, though. Yeah, because Disney, from if other than Jason Siegel's film, they keep kind of messing it up. This is brilliant. They're shooting it mockumentary style, so it's almost got like a spinal tap sort of feel to it. Um, it is going to be almost like that office or modern family style comedy where they're interviewing main cast as Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem are putting together an album because we know from the Muppets who they are. Uh, and we've seen them perform, but I love the premise of the film that they're calling it out that they've never actually put an album out. So they are thrown into recording in the age of social media um, and hilarity is going to ensue. I am confident in saying it. The cameos are absolutely out of this world. I was already excited by seeing who was in this movie, even though I can't believe they got they let Tommy Lee in. Um, so I was getting super hyped. And then by the end of the trailer, I see Kevin Smith and I just about fell out of my chair. I'm so excited. Yeah, that I'm super excited for. Great trailer. I just hope that Disney finds a way to not lose out on an opportunity to bring the Muppets back. Like I said, Seagull's Muppets, outstanding. Muppet Haunted Mansion, unbelievable. The television show that was on ABC, we loved it. They canceled it after one year. Um, and everything else just kind of seems like it falls flat, and then it goes dormant for a few years, and then it comes back. So let this be... Let let Muppet Haunted Mansion from last year be phase one, if we're taking a term from Marvel. Let this be phase two that gets us to phase three with a resurgence of the Muppets. But I feel like this is also going to be self-contained enough where they don't necessarily need a season two for it. I don't think that this is going to continue on, but I also don't think it's going to be like, okay, we tried with the Muppets again and then failed. I, I just hope we see something else along these lines, maybe with different characters following in this vein of the reality parody. Yeah. Um, and lastly, news this week, marathon weekend registration happened yesterday and it went pretty smooth. It was a hell of a lot smoother than the marathon weekend registration last year, where I don't think the registration started until almost two hours after it was supposed to. I think I sat in this room for four and a half or five hours before I actually got registered, but I got into dopey. So 
all of my TikTok efforts are not a total waste of time because if I've been doing dopey training on TikTok, all for it to mean that I didn't get into dopey, I would have kept doing them because they're fun enough to do. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that it reaches out to the right people and that somebody else will do run Disney watching me do it. But I'm, I'm excited that I actually got into dopey. I'm excited I kinda, for you. I kind of can't believe that I'm actually doing it. Even though I did I did three quarters of that last year. I did Goofy plus a 5K. Like, actually sitting here and clicking through registration for Dopey is something I never thought I'd be doing. So it was kind of a surreal experience to actually do it. I think it's probably different because you knew you weren't doing the 10K last year. So you had that little bit of a built-in break. But, I mean, you did the hardest part of it. You did the full, or you did the half and the full. So, you know that you can do those things now. But I'm guessing now, that and correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe it's different now because you know exactly what to expect. Because that was your first one. So, you're just hoping you get through it. Now you know how you have to get through it. I just have to work a 10K in. Uh, it's all I have to do, and I think that I can do that. But we're interested in hearing from you. Did you get into the races that you wanted this weekend? How do you feel about the Peter Pan and Wendy trailer? How do you feel about the Muppets Mayhem trailer? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us at monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. I just gave you all of that social media. And for links to everything related to the show, it is going to be online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.